We started a series we call Seeing God, or Seeing Christ, Seeing Jesus, actually. And it was coming off the uh, Easter season and, and the resurrection. And we thought, let's, let's spend some time now after the uh, great celebration of the resurrection. Let's spend some time reminding ourselves of who Jesus is. And, and do we really see Jesus? Do we really understand who he is? Because, you know, some of us... Uh, some of us grew up in the church, and we see it in, even in the testimonies of the kids a little bit. Some of us grew up in the church, and, and we've got this picture of who Jesus is, uh, this image of who Jesus is. And for some of us, that Jesus is the one that he, he kind of sets the rules, and then our job is to obey the rules. And if you don't obey the rules, you're going to get in trouble. And he's this kind of judge or, or policeman or somebody who holds us accountable for doing the right things or, or doing whatever it is, following the rules that he's given us. And, and that's our picture of who Jesus is, and, and then some of us grew up outside of the church, and, and we sort of have this picture of, of who Jesus is. It's a little bit blurry. It's a little bit foggy. It's not really clear to us, and, and we go through our lives, and, and sort of events happen to us, and, and we think, well, if that's what Jesus looks like, I don't know if I want that or not, and, and, and so t- sometimes we just have to get refocused and get a clear picture of who Jesus is. And, and that's what we're going to continue this morning. And we're going to do that by, by in the Gospel of John. We're looking at the Gospel of John, and we're going to look at, at, at seven pictures that he gives us about who he is. And the first one uh, that we're going to look at this morning is uh, out, of, out of John, the second chapter. And it's the first miracle in Jesus' public ministry. Uh, the first miracle that Jesus did uh, as he introduced himself as the Christ, as the Messiah. Now, I have a definition of a miracle up here. A miracle is a surprising and welcome event that's not explicable by natural or scientific laws and is therefore considered to be a work of divine energy. So what, what they're saying is that, we, that a miracle is something that we can't explain. A miracle is something that's bigger uh, than we, that we have no way to define it, we have no way to explain it, and it must be a miracle, and therefore it must have been done by someone who's powerful enough and great enough to perform uh, miracles. And, and yet, in the Gospel of John, he doesn't use the word miracle. He uses the word sign. And all through, in, through the first, in fact, the first uh, John 2 through chapter 11 of the Gospel of John, there are seven signs that Jesus performs, seven signs that help us to understand what he looks like, to help us understand who Jesus is, and we're going to look at the first of those signs this morning. A sign is something that points to something, and Jesus wants us to see these miracles. He wants to see those, uh, to see these signs as something that points to him, something that helps us to see who Jesus is. So, uh, so let's look at this in John, the second chapter. It says this, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And so we have the beginning. Last week we talked about that Jesus is the Lamb of God, and we have this picture of, of who he is. And, and then we go to chapter 2, and think about this. He's beginning his public ministry, and, and they ask him, okay, what are you going to do? What are you going to do to roll out the Messiah campaign? 
You know, the disciples, there's five of them now at the end of chapter one, and, and there's Jesus, and they're in a boardroom, and they've got a smart board up there, and they're, they're looking at, okay, how are we going to roll this out? How are we going to start this Messiah campaign? How, how are we, what's the very first thing that we need to do? What are the first 90 days? What do you have to cover? And so they're, they're creating this strategic plan, and they're talking about how do we roll this out, and, and the disciples, Peter probably, he's the one that always thinks big. Peter, Peter maybe thinks about this, and he says, how about this? How about if you cure a leper. We find a person with leprosy and they look bad and everybody's afraid of them and you gotta yell unclean and there's all this stuff that goes around with being a leper and how about if you clear, how about if you cleansed a leper and we could announce it and we could do a press release and we could tell all these people, Here, here's the Messiah, the Christ and, and he's cleansed this leper and then wait, but Jesus, I got a better idea. Let's take on a whole leper colony. Let's get them all. Let's just, go, let's just clear it all up and we can really launch our deal. Well, I'm pretty sure Jesus never went into a boardroom, okay? So I was just sort of building the picture for us. You know, it's not really in the story. But imagine this, that the very first sign, the very first picture that Jesus wants us to get isn't that he healed the blind person, isn't that he healed the lame, but that he saved a party. (laughs) That's not exactly how I would have rolled it out. But they say, okay, Jesus, what do you want to do? We're going to go to a wedding, and I'm going to save the party. And people are going to see me as a result of that. And it's such a great picture for us of who Jesus is. And and that's why we want to talk about it this morning. So the very first thing that we find out is that Jesus went to this place called Cana. I have a map up here, and you can see it. The, 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 The lighter colored whatever is that like I don't even I don't do shades well is that blue or green or something up there but it's Galilee you can see that and Galilee was a whole region and inside that within that region there was Cana and Nazareth and Nain and some other places at Capernaum uh, where Peter and John and those guys were from Uh, Cana was actually where Nathaniel was was from and that's where they are that's where the wedding uh, took place was in this little place this little town called Cana and weddings were big deals in the first century. You know, first you became betrothed, and betrothal was a much more important, much more substantial than our engagement today. But betrothal, you were really committing your life. That was part of the marriage process was that you became betrothed and, and you were really committed to each other and betrothals could last a, a long time. And then you finally get to the wedding and, and, and at the wedding you have a, some kind of ceremony and then you have a party, you have a feast. And that feast could go on for up to seven days of partying, of feasting of celebration of the marriage. In fact, that was sort of the tradition. It was a seven-day process because they marriage was so sacred, marriage was so important, marriage was such a big deal. And here's another part of the wedding uh, and, and the feast is that it was all the responsibility of the groom to pay for it. He's going, yeah. So if any of you guys are you know, fathers of all daughters, just say, we're going old school. Back to the Bible. Let's do it the way they did it. You know, let the groom pay for everything. But that, that was it. And, and if, you, if you didn't do a good job, then it, there, it, was, it, it had huge implications. They were an honor and shame culture. 
And if you didn't do a good job, if you ran out of something at your feast, if you didn't welcome people the right way, if you didn't have everything set up for them, you would bring shame, not just to the couple, but to the whole family. And so the, 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 the how you did this was a really big deal. And so Jesus goes in his first public ministry, uh, his first miracle, he is at a wedding in Cana. <laughs> And disaster happens. They start to run short. In fact, in verse 3, it says this, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to them, They have no wine. I love this part. Because Jesus' mom is there, and they're about to run out of wine, and she says, Jesus, do something. You're my son. We have a disaster. Do something. And it's really interesting because, you know, we know the story of Mary. We, we know about the virgin birth, and we know that at the end of the first chapter of Luke, it, uh, when all these things were happening in Jesus' life, it says that Mary treasured these things in her heart. She remembered all of that. She had treasured those things for 30 years, and now they come to this moment, and now they come to this wedding, and they find they're going to run uh, out of wine, and it's going to bring shame on the family. It was going to bring a shame so serious, so big, that you could actually sue somebody in that day for running out of wine at the wedding. That's a big, that's a party, right? You could sue somebody for running out of wine at the wedding. And so Mary hears about this and she immediately goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, they're running out of wine. Like, come on, do something. What did I raise you for? How did I teach you? And then Jesus' response is so interesting. Here's what Jesus says in verse 4. Jesus said to her, woman, man. Guys, so yeah, that's kind of cool. He said, woman, I've actually never tried that in my house, okay? I occasionally read this verse just really loud, but I've never actually tried using that. <laughs> he said, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Mary looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, they're, this is going to be horrible. They're running out of wine. It's going to humiliate it's going to, the family. It's going to bring shame on the family. And Jesus gives her a completely different answer. It's like she asked a completely different question. And, and so you're wondering what's going on at this moment. Jesus, Mary is looking at the situation on, at hand. She's looking at the circumstances they're in, uh, immediate, at the immediate circumstances. And Jesus is looking at something completely different. There's something else that's going on. And, and we have to think that as Jesus is at this wedding, and, and you know how it is you when you go to a wedding, you think about your wedding, you think about your future wedding, you, it makes you reflect on those things. And and, and we have to figure that Jesus is at this wedding, but he's thinking about another time. He's thinking about another wedding that's going to happen, that there's going to be a wedding in the future uh, that's talked about. It's in, in Revelations 21. It says that at the end of time, at the end of history, when everything's done, there is going to be a wedding feast. It's going to be the marriage feast of the Lamb, and that all there'll be no more tears. All sickness will be cured. That We will celebrate with the God of the universe. We'll celebrate with the Christ for eternity. It is the feast to end all feasts. It's the banquet to end all banquets. It's the party of all parties, and that we're going to experience that for eternity. And Jesus is thinking about this, but he's also thinking about the fact that before we get to that feast, before he gets to that feast, that, that he's got a lot to do. That there is more to do. 
And when you read the New Testament, when, when Jesus refers to his hour, my hour, that is always a reference to the cross. And Mary says, Jesus, they're about to run out of wine. And Jesus says, it's not my time to die. It's not my time to die. That his hour is always referenced to the cross. Jesus is at this party. He is at this feast. He's at this marriage feast. And he recognizes that someday there is going to be a feast to end all feasts. But before we can get to that, there's going to be the cross. Well, Jesus used this, this word woman, and, and sometimes we get stuck on that, and, and we want to make it sound nicer or better. It's, it is sort of a brusque word. It's just sort of an abrupt word, but, but here's how I'd like you to think about it this morning, because Jesus refers to Mary this way one more time in the New Testament, and that's at the end of the Gospel of John, and Jesus is hanging on a cross And after all that he's been through, after the agony, after the beating, after the humiliation, he's on the cross and he looks down and he sees Mary. And he looks next to her and he sees the apostle John. And he says, woman, this is your son. And he looks at John and he says, this is your mother. That Jesus from the cross, and this is a picture of who Jesus is that's that's so unique that Jesus is looking at from the cross and what's he thinking about? He's thinking about someone else. And he looks at John and he says, now this is gonna be your mother. John, it's time to step up. You're gonna take care of Mary now. And in that context, when we see how he uses Mary in those two passages, we have to understand that there was something remarkably intimate about that. Well, here's the other part of that that's so powerful is that there's probably never been a mother in history that had to make a sharp, as sharp a turn as Mary did. That Mary is in this moment, she sees that they're running out of wine and she says, Jesus, they're running out of wine with the expectation, do something, you know, fix this, make this right. And Jesus says, woman, my hour has not yet come. And all of a sudden, Mary must have looked up and she realizes, I'm not talking to Jesus, my son, anymore, but I am talking to the Messiah. I'm talking to the Christ. The King of Kings is standing before me and and everything is going to change now. Everything is going to be different. And and if you're a mom and you watch your kids go through adolescence and you realize that the turn that you have to make when they begin to grow up, can you imagine what it would be like to be standing there and at that moment realize "This this is the God of the universe standing in front of me? This is Jesus the Christ, and everything is different now. And and so Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. Verse 5, though, is pretty remarkable. Verse 5, with all of that, Mary sits back, and she looks at the servants, and she says, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you to do. I love that. I'm not exactly sure what's going on right now. (laughs) I'm a little over my head at the moment. I've never experienced this before, but here's what I know, that this is Jesus. I've watched him. I've been watching him for 30 years. I've treasured all of those early events in my heart. And now I just want you to do whatever he tells you to do. Even if you don't quite understand it, even if it doesn't make sense, do what he tells you to do. And here's what happens in verse 6. It says, Now there were six stone jars 
There were six stone jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the masters of the feast. So they took it. There were six stone jars that were in the, in, in the entryway of the house. And, you know, when you do a feast and it goes seven days, you need extra things. So they probably borrowed some of these jars from their neighbors, their friends, family. But they were for rites of purification. They were for rites of cleansing. That's what they were there for. It was part of their ritual. It was part of their ceremony that when you walked into a house, you would wash your feet, you would wash your hands, you would make sure you were cleansed before you would go and recline at the table. So they have all of these jars that that's what they were there for. They were for their rites, their purification rites. And Jesus says, you know what? I've got another use for them. I have a brand new use for these stone jars. I want you to fill them with water because I've got something new. I've got something better. I've got something special. And they filled them, and he said, fill them to the very brim. And I want you to think about this for a second because when Jesus fills something, he always fills it completely. John 10, 10, Jesus said, I came that you might have life and to have it abundantly. I didn't come to fill you halfway. I didn't come to fill you partially. I didn't come to just give you a taste of what it's like to have me in your life. But when I fill you, I'm gonna fill you all the way to fullness. I'm all the way to overflowing. I'm gonna fill your life and so Jesus said, fill them to the very brim. And then one of the great moments in history, he tells these servants, now I want you to take it to the master of the feast. Let him try this. What do you do if you're a servant? Uh, it's water in a jar. Okay, they take it to the master of the feast. They take the water. And the master of the feast tasted the water that had now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to them, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So I, I have to break this to you because we're in church. Um, they were drinking wine at the wedding. <laughs> it was a seven-day feast, okay? Am I going too fast for you? So around about the sixth day, nobody cares how good the wine is. That's the point here. It's over. And yet the master of the feast says, wait a minute, this isn't the way we've always done it. This isn't the way this is supposed to work because most people, they bring out the cheap stuff. They bring out the watered down stuff at the end. They're just stretching it to try to last till the end of the seventh day. But you, but you have brought French wine. You have brought the best wine. You have saved the very best for the end. And I don't know where you got it. I don't know how you did it, but this is unbelievable. I've never had anything like it. And I want you to know that this is a picture of Jesus, that when he transforms something, it's the best. Nothing better. And Jesus would never transform anyone or anything and leave it just okay. He doesn't do that. When he transforms something, it is the best. It's the best it can possibly be. He created wine the way wine was created to be. 
when he transforms us, he creates in us, he makes us the person that we were created to be. That's what Jesus does when he comes into a life. There's no halfway, there's no mediocre, there's no get by with Jesus. He makes the very best. Sometimes we don't feel like the very best. Sometimes we think, like, Jesus, you, didn't, you got the mixture wrong or something with me. I'm not. But, you know, usually it's because we're not who we thought we were supposed to be. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm making you who I think you're supposed to be, who I created you to be. That's what really matters. That's what Jesus does in our lives. That's what he looks like. He's, Jesus is not a vending machine and you put your money in and you push the button and you get whatever it is that you sort of had your eye on in the, in the window. And, and, and Jesus isn't a genie that we rub the bottle and we make three wishes and we get whatever we desire, but Jesus is the God of the universe. He's the creator. He, he gives us life, he recreates us, but he wants us to understand, just as Mary saw that day, that he is the Christ, and he is the creator. And he promises that. And he makes it the best. There's one other thing about the, cu about the wine, and that's that in those days, they didn't drink wine out of a glass, but they drank it out of a cup. They drank their wine out of a cup. And we're going to read, you'll, you'll read just later on in the Gospel of John, then the night that Jesus was betrayed, the scripture says he took a cup and he filled it with wine. And he said, this represents the blood of my new covenant. And whenever you drink from this cup, you do it in remembrance of me until I return. That the cup always is a picture of Christ's suffering. It's always a picture of Christ's death on the cross the shedding of his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. If you follow that from that moment at the, the Last Supper to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is praying and he's praying to the Father and he says, Father, if there is any other way that I don't have to go through this separation for the first time in eternity, I don't have to go through the separation between you and I. If there is any other way to do this, but Lord, not my, Father, not my will, but your will. He says, if there, is, if there is any way, what does he say? Take this cup. Take this cup from me. And so when we see Jesus at the time of this wedding and he makes the very best wine, but he's also thinking about the cup that he's about to drink. Hebrews 12, 4, or 12, 2, I'm sorry, says that, that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, accepting our shame that Jesus for the joy that sat before him, here's what Jesus knew, that he would suffer, that he would take that cup of suffering, but the reason that he would suffer is so that we could experience joy. So that at the end of his suffering, the result is that we would experience his joy. He suffered so he could bring us joy. You see, Jesus is the joy bringer. He is the joy giver. But first there was the suffering and you know, that's so true in our lives, isn't it? That sometimes in our lives, we go through suffering, we go through really 
painful and really hard things, but here's what we know, that if we're in Christ, there is an end to this. We know how the story finishes. We've already read the last chapter. We know that at the end of all of this, that there is a feast uh, to end all feasts, that there is a party to end all parties, that we spend eternity with the God of the universe, the Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. And so even in the middle of the hardest times in our lives, we are people who have hope, that we are people who have joy because we know how it ends. I don't know, that's pretty awesome. That's really good news. And that's how we can live our lives because Jesus took that cup of suffering and now we can receive his joy. And then the master of the feast tasted it and said, this is the very best. You know, master of the feast was a huge, uh, it was a big, really important job at weddings. They were the MCs. It was their responsibility. They were kind of a combination of an MC and, uh, and a, a, a wedding coordinator. They were there to make sure the food got out, that the servants did what they were supposed to do, that everything was warm or everything was supposed to be cold was cold and that everything went just right and everybody was happy and everybody sat in the right place and all of those kinds of things took uh, happened when they were supposed to happen and all that was all the job of the master of the feast. They call, sometimes called them the Lord of the feast. But at the end of that day, at the end of that wedding feast, they knew who the real master of the feast was. The real master of the feast was Jesus. And that's because Jesus always had in mind what was to come. He always had in mind another wedding, a wedding that we would celebrate with him when his church went to be with him. Verse 11 says this, this is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory that he began to let us see who he really is and his disciples believed in him. It was the beginning, it was that moment the disciples said this really must be the Christ. This must be the Messiah. He showed his glory, his disciples believed in him in verse 12 and after this he went to Capernaum with his mothers and brothers and his disciples and he stayed there for a few days. You know, um, we, uh, Jen and I, we got to go to a wedding last night and uh, it was very fun, very special. And I've done a lot of weddings in my life. I've officiated a lot of weddings. And one of the great moments at a wedding is standing up at the front and with the groom as the bride starts down the aisle. And I don't know if you've had the, the, weddings are a big deal to brides. Have you noticed that? And it's, it's planning and preparation. It's amazing. And it's hoping the groom remembers to get his tux and, you know, his socks. You know, that, and, and then the brides are just spectacular and somebody comes and does their makeup and somebody comes and does their hair and, and they, they, they go to the fashion mart in Los Angeles to look for dresses and they, all of this stuff is going on and it's just, oh, it's amazing and I get tired just thinking about it and they, they all, and then the wedding day comes and she's there and she's walking down and I've never, I've never in all of my years been at a wedding, been standing there with the groom and overheard a groom say, oh, she didn't get her makeup quite right. 
you know, the veil's a little off. No, it's all I can do to hold him back, right? He is staring at, now what might happen is he might just start to cry. I've had that happen where I always keep like several handkerchiefs in my pocket, but because you never know if it's going to be the bride or the groom or dad or, you know, but sometimes all of them at the same time, you get multiple handkerchiefs. But brides are just radiant. And one of the most powerful things is to see the bride through the eyes of the groom. You know, I'm watching the bride come down the aisle, but I'm looking over at the groom and I'm seeing his face. And I'm seeing how just odd he is, how excited he is, how moved he is by this woman that's walking down the aisle toward him. She's beautiful. She's perfect. She's what he always dreamed of. And here's what I want you to picture this morning is that that someday the bride of Christ is going to walk down the aisle. The church of Jesus, his bride is going to walk down the aisle and Jesus is going to stand there and he's looking and he's looking at us. And we are beautiful in his sight. You know, sometimes it's important for us to see Jesus more clearly and sometimes it's really important for us to be reminded how Jesus sees us. And we are beautiful in his sight because he made us beautiful. It's by his death on the cross. It's by the resurrection. It's by his spirit that lives in us that he makes us beautiful. You are beautiful to Jesus this morning. There's five things that I would love for you to consider before we leave this morning. Five, here's the first one. Any wine except this wine will eventually run out. Any other wine that you try to build your life on, any other wine that you try to make your life about is eventually going to run out. Except this. Except Jesus. He will never run out. There's never not going to be enough. Here's the second one. <laughs> Do whatever he tells you. Sometimes we want, Lord, I wonder how this is going to turn out. I wonder what this is going to look like. This is what I think my life should look like. This is, and some, there are points in our lives that we just have to stop and say, Lord, I believe in you. I trust you. I'm going to do whatever you tell me to do. I'm simply going to trust you with my life. Here's the third one. Learn how to draw on your knowledge of what is coming in the future to help you through your present. Simply this that we go through times in our lives, we go through crazy times, unexplainable times, painful times, times of suffering, but we know how it ends. We know how the story ends, and it's in the middle of those moments. It's in the middle of those moments that are so hard that we need to remind ourselves of how this all ends, what Jesus has done for us. Here's the fourth one. Please don't let marriage throw you. Some of you are here this morning, and when you think about marriage, it's a painful thought. It's a tough thought. Marriage wasn't what you thought it was supposed to be. Marriage didn't turn out the way you thought it was supposed to turn out. And, and when you think of marriage, when you think of all of this, it's a, it's a painful memory. But I want you to understand that that's what Jesus does, that Jesus transforms, Jesus changes. He turns water into wine. And it's about who he is. It's not about who we are or what we've experienced, but it's what Jesus does and what he can do in our lives. And here's the last one. Don't settle for anything less than a rich prayer life. You have to learn to access that right now, that Jesus has offered us that hope. He has offered us this life. He has offered to transform us. He is turning everything upside down. 
But to access that, we need to talk to him. We need to pray to him. We need to have a moment where we say, I've been trying everything else. I've been trying to fill my life with everything else. Lord, please forgive me. Or I've been looking at you like a vending machine, or I've been angry at you because my life hasn't gone the way I wanted. And Lord, I confess that. and, And I want you to fill me and I want you to transform me. But we access that when we talk to him. He access that through prayer. And don't settle for anything short of being all that Christ wants you to be. Don't settle for anything short than what Jesus wants to make of your life. Don't settle for mediocre. Don't settle for just regular, but allow Christ to make you into who he created you to be. Let him do all of that work in your life. He's the transformer. He's the Christ. He's the king. Don't settle for anything less than Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. You you are the Lord of the feast. You are the groom. Uh, Lord, you are our savior, our Christ, and we are so grateful this morning. And we ask, Lord, that you would forgive us when we, Lord, when we don't see you clearly. Uh, Lord, when we allow the trouble, the pain in our lives to, to fog our view of who you really are. You are hope, Lord. You drank the cup of suffering so that we could experience your joy. And Lord, we want to receive your joy this morning. And Lord, we will be careful to give you the honor and the glory and the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.